We are today um, going to continue in Acts, so Acts chapter 17. If you're using one of those Bibles, blue Bibles from the back, uh, those Bibles will be on page 540. If you don't have one, please feel free to jump up and go back there and uh, grab one of those, and we will be uh, pressing on here in the book of Acts. We have been journeying this through this book together. If you're, if you're new with us, just really thankful that you've chosen to come this morning. Hope you'll be encouraged by the reading and hearing of God's Word. Our habit as a church family is to simply open the Scriptures each Sunday and go uh, paragraph by paragraph through the Scriptures because we believe this is how God continues to speak and that we so desperately need to hear uh, from Him. Uh, there is a sense in which the gap between the church and the world is growing in both breadth and depth. Christian and non-Christian alike seem to be moving further and further and further apart. Our sense of common agreement in worldview and shared morality is rapidly disappearing. For those of you uh, here in the room or perhaps watching online, the, the fact is that within your lifetimes, let's take, for example, those 50 and up. For people up in that age range, um, Abby, your mom's not there yet. I saw you look at her like that. Um, the, for those roughly 50 and up, certainly within your lifetime, you have seen your, some of your Christian views move from mainstream to marginalized to villainized. And the speed at which all of this is happening is rather astonishing. Take, for example, just the fact that in the span of only a generation or two, in America, the basic building block of society, the family, has all but disintegrated. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. My point here is not that Christians are somehow more virtuous today than Christians in the past, and that the world is somehow more heinous. That's simply not true. That's moral nonsense. We Christians are not people who think of ourselves as better or morally superior than the world. No, we're people simply who have come to understand something of how bad we actually are, and therefore we've come to enjoy the grace of God in Christ. So I don't at all mean that, that we in here are the good people and those out there are the bad people. What I am asserting, though, is that those places in the United States where cultural Christianity is an accepted norm are quickly evaporating. Certainly in cities like Tempe, if you're a Christian and you hold that view publicly, you're downright weird. Why? Well, in some way, it's partly because of some of the views that you hold. You see, Bible-believing Christians believe things that are out of touch, if you will, with society. To, to say that hell is real, or that authority is a good gift from God, or to hold the perspective that gender is binary and fixed, or that homosexual behavior is sinful, or that people are born with an innate sense bent toward evil, not toward good, or that I have some inherent 
desires that I actually should not follow because they're harmful. To hold any of these perspectives is to put yourself at odds with the culture. And therefore, to hold these views makes you something of a unicorn. Everybody's heard of one, but you've never actually seen one. Furthermore, especially on issues around the the nexus of, of gender and sexuality, Historic Christian positions are now viewed as oppressive and hateful. Now, coming to terms with this can feel initially rather discouraging. And you may find that your temptation is, as the world goes further down these paths, that you would retreat deeper and deeper into your home, withdrawing from the culture. But... To do that is tragically selfish and short-sighted. In fact, it's rather anti-Christian. You see, the, the clearer the distinction between the church and the world, the more powerfully the gospel of Jesus Christ can be presented. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity at all. You see, the darker the night, the brighter the morning light. These are days in which we ought to feel emboldened in our faith. These are days to run toward people who have yet to hear of and trust Jesus Christ rather than to retreat from them. See, the culture isn't like the coronavirus. You you can't catch worldliness from somebody else. No, it comes from within. It flows from the heart. And so we Christians ought to be people who in these days are not retreating but rather are engaging. Beloved, we live in a world today that is not, in fact, unprecedented, but is, in fact, more and more and more like the world of the New Testament. Christianity began and flourished in days with morals that are very similar to what the world holds today. And that's part of what makes the book of Acts so helpful. Today, you see, we come to a passage that, among all the texts in the Bible that describe how to share the gospel with non-Christians, particularly non-Christians with, with no background, no common knowledge to, uh, to pull from about the Christian faith, this text helps us see how to do that. Maybe I could put it in the form of a question. How do we Christians relate to a culture oblivious to biblical Christianity? Well, Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34 shows us how. If you're uh, new with us this morning or haven't been around for the summer, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And in this particular section of Acts, the uh, greatest missionary the world has ever known, a man named the Apostle Paul, is on his second missionary journey. All that means is he and a couple of friends packed their bags and headed out on a trip to travel to city after city after city to share the good news of Jesus and start churches with those who responded favorably. This trip lasted about three years, and we are working our way through it, learning not only what happened, but something of what God continues to do today. We'll pick up the story with Paul alone in Athens waiting for his friends to meet him. Athens, of course, is the 
intellectual powerhouse of the ancient world. As we study together this morning, I want to encourage you to pay careful attention to how Paul responded to the city of Athens. You can even think of this through the, the lens of what did Paul see? What did he feel? What did he say? What did he do? What did he see? What did he feel? What did he say? And what did he do? And in so doing, we'll uncover something of what the Lord would have us to be doing. So if you would look with me first at just one verse, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's the rest of his team, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This trip was likely the very first time Paul had ever set foot in Athens. He was a very educated man, yet this was a long, long ways from his house. He'd probably heard much about it, but never actually set his eyes on it before. Athens, of course, was the Cambridge of the ancient world. We, we continue to live in the wake of thinkers like Plato and Aristotle. For those of you who are students, this year, particularly if you're at university, much of what you'll be taught stems from the things that were uncovered way back then and there. It's hard to describe the matchless beauty and enduring impact of the city of Athens. Even today, some 2,000 years later, people continue to travel there to look at the things that were built way back then. Now, at this point in the first century, Acts was past its prime, and yet it remained the intellectual capital of the world. This was the place where all the smarts came from. You can tell I'm not from there. Now, as, as Paul walked down the roadways, as he went into the buildings, as he stood in the marketplace, and in particular, as he saw the Acropolis, that big mound in the center of town upon which, on top of it, was the uh, great Parthenon and the temple to Athena Nike. What caught his eye? What is it that, that captured his gaze? Now, it would have been understandable that Paul, finally alone, reaches a great, beautiful city, and he decides to take a few days off. I mean, vacation is a good thing, right? It could have been that he'd come into the city and decide, I'm going to push pause on missionary, and I'm just going to wander around and look at the sights. I'm going to take in the beauty of the city. However, what he saw as he looked around prevented him from being able to do that. What captured his gaze was not the city's stunning architecture or its unequaled beauty. No, what, what captured him was the fact that the city was full of idols. Historians estimate that in the first century, the city of Athens had a population of only around 10,000 people. And yet the city also had some 30,000 statues of gods. That meant as you walked to the market to do your shopping, for every one person you saw, you would see three idols. The city was quite literally submerged 
in idolatry. And many of these gods would be things you've heard of. Zeus, Poseidon, Athena, Artemis, Ares, Aphrodite. These and many others consumed not only the real estate, but the, the minds and hearts of the Athenians. That's what Paul saw. And many of these statues were enormous, much bigger than people towering above them. As Paul observed this city swallowed up in idolatry, notice not only what he saw, but what he felt. This is one of those unusual passages in the Bible that uncover for us the feelings of people. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked, provoked. From, from deep within the heart of this missionary, a holy fire of jealousy for God was lit, as well as a zealousness for people to be rescued out of the enslavement of worshiping false gods. Paul was astonished that on a grand scale, this most intelligent of all places was consumed with the most stupid of things. They had given themselves to worshiping objects that they had made. And that makes no sense at all. If you're a Christian, I would ask you, friend, when you observe idolatry, does it cause your heart to burn? Does it provoke you? When you stop and take in the fact that all around us there is the ascribing of ultimate worth to things other than God, when you see people consumed with the worship of false gods, do you feel anything of the holy jealousy that God and God alone would be rightly seen and worshipped and enjoyed and obeyed? Do we understand, understand the degree to which it is an egregious affront to worship anything and anyone besides God? Remember that the absence of statues today doesn't equal the presence of only worshiping God. No, there's plenty of idolatry today. I think this is very commonly misunderstood, that we, we think that we've somehow evolved beyond idolatry because we don't have 30,000 statues around Tempe. But understand the nature of idolatry in and of itself. You see, ultimately, the people weren't worshiping the statue. They were worshiping what that statue, that God, was supposed to give them. And so, the worship of one God might be for fertility. The worship of another might be for education. The worship of another would be for the sun to provide uh, heat in order to bring about healthy crops. All that we've done today is cut out the statue and worship the end thing anyway. There is absolutely no difference. You see, ascribing ultimate worth or finding the crux of your identity or putting supreme trust in or living with your life absolutely consumed by. These are just different ways of describing what worship is. These are all forms of false worship. You see, you can worship your job, your kids, money, success, 
a desire to get pregnant, a desire to get married. You can worship pleasure, politics, success. You can worship anything. Anything can be put on that proverbial throne of your heart and become an idol. Again, we don't have 30,000 statues scattered about Tempe, but idolatry is no less pervasive. Church, as we consider our own hearts and as we observe our own city, we ought to have a righteous provoking. There ought to be a burning within us that God would be seen for who God is and that people could enjoy Him and stop their foolish idolatry. So that's what Paul saw and that's what he felt. Let's consider now what what he did. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues and with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Boy, does that sound like fun. Now, friends, as you consider this passage, notice that Paul's response was not to see the idolatry of the city and then run. Nor was it to stand in opposition with his arms crossed and his nose turned up as though he were better. No, his, his intent was that God might be seen for who he is. And so although he was one single individual, he also didn't feel so overwhelmed that there was nothing that could be done. No, instead he got involved. He reasoned in the marketplace and in the synagogue. Whether preaching to crowds or sharing one-on-one with whomever would listen, Paul presented Jesus Christ resurrected as the only hope and yet the sure hope out of the enslavement of idol worship. It's clear that some, Paul, some, some thought Paul's message was rather bizarre, that he was weird, that he was inventive, that it was a, just another philosophy. Brothers and sisters, as we share Christ, we too will be thought of by some as weird as having just another inventive philosophy. But, feeling a burden for the recovery of the worship of God alone, Paul continued to share. This last week as I've been preparing, I've found myself thinking often about the fact that there was one small Jewish man in this sea of idols. And yet, what can God do through one person? It's amazing, isn't it? 
you have probably heard of the, the Areopagus, or perhaps by its more commonly known uh, Latin term, Mars Hill. Mars Hill is this large marble rock that sits just to the northwest below the uh, Parthenon. And it's, it's still there today. Jill and I went there for anniversary a few years back. For thousands of years, people have climbed up that marble hill in order to talk about things. In fact, so many people have climbed up it, it's almost impossible to get up it today because it's so slick. It's been worn down. It's like a big hunk of ice. This is the spot where the city council would gather and oversee all things Greek. They would be the intellectual guardians of the city. Remember that every city has something that it prizes as most dear, that makes it who it is. And for Athens, it was their intellectual proudness. This council would, would hear and debate and settle ideas as the guardians of the Athenian intellectual dominance. And so as something new was being shared in the market, they could not stand that to go on. They had to hear it up on Mars Hill in order to make a judgment about whether it was true or not. And as Paul was taken up that hill, that hill where Plato and Aristotle would have stood and shared, what came out of Paul's mouth would become by far the most famous address to non-Christians in the whole Scripture. Let's see what he said in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, that's this city council who would guard the knowledge of the city. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, church, there is far more here than we have time to explore uh, today, so I hope that you'll consider what I'll share in the next few minutes as 
merely getting you started in your understanding of this text. I would encourage you before you even leave the room, or if you're online, before you turn off YouTube, that you would reach out to somebody else and say something simple to them like, hey, would you get together with me this week? And let's continue studying this passage. Let's learn more of what's here because there's far more than we can get to. These verses are solid gold for understanding the gospel and for growing and discerning how to share Christ with people who have little background in Christianity. For, for our purposes, we'll hit just the high points, but don't misunderstand that as being all that's here. In the few remaining minutes we have, let's consider two things. Let's consider Paul's method and his message. His method and his message. First, let's think together about his method. If you are familiar with the book of Acts, or if you've just listened to the last few messages, maybe you noticed that this sermon is very different than the ones Paul has given before it. In particular, notice the absence in Paul's sermon of any direct quotation from the Old Testament scriptures. That part of your Bible, Genesis through Malachi, the first two-thirds, in every sermon prior to this one, Paul's method has been to grab something or often many things from Genesis through Malachi to pull them forward into his present context and to say, look, these things written back then, they're about Jesus. That's been the basic foundational structure of his messages. But here, there's none of that. In fact, not only does he not explicitly quote from the Old Testament, but instead, he explicitly quotes from pagan poets. Why? Well, it's because his audience had no direct knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. To say to them, Numbers says, or Isaiah says, or Psalms say, would be to say nothing to them. They don't even know what those are. He was speaking not to Jewish monotheists, but to Greek polytheists. The audience was completely different. Don't miss the point. Paul's methodology was always to take the, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ and share it with his hearers. But the, the, the vehicle that message was set in could vary tremendously because the audience is different. Paul always preached Christ, but his strategy was to first build a bridge to the gospel here by standing on the shoulders of the thinkers of the people of Athens that they already knew. What this served to do was to start with a conciliatory tone, building on knowledge they already had, and then shifting that to help them see what they didn't yet know. Church, as we share the gospel today, I want to encourage you not to ram the same gospel presentation down the throat of every hearer, because every hearer is not the same. Instead, pray, observe, 
listen, get to know, and then adjust and share Christ. Never water down the essentials of the gospel, but present Christ clearly. And if Christ would be presented clearly, that must mean you're willing to take different approaches. Start with what you and your hearer agree on and even commend them where you can. You might say begin with a feather, not with a baseball bat. Use the areas of common agreement in order to build a bridge from the world of the hearer to the world of the Bible. That was Paul's method. Now let's think together about his message. As Paul observed the city, you'll notice in verse 23, that he, he looked out and one of the things he saw was an inscription to, quote, an unknown God. I can't help but think there's a little bit of humor here because it's as though the Athenians were so concerned about getting all the gods that they thought maybe it's not 30,000, maybe it's 30,001. So to make sure we've got that one, we're going to make an idol that is an altar that says on it, to the unknown God. That way we've got all our bases covered. The irony, of course, here is that that one unnamed God turned out to be the only true God. That's where Paul started from. Paul carefully taught, as you look back through his sermon, that God is the creator. And notice, friends, how he describes God. This, of course, is the most important thing for you to get right, who God is. Nothing will more shape your life than your perspective on God. God is described here as the creator. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. He has no needs. You will never help God out. You'll never provide him with something he doesn't have. You'll never shore up what's missing. You'll never surprise him with something you know that he doesn't. God is self-sufficient. And he's not only this creator, he's also the sovereign sustainer. Friend, did you know that every, every beat of your heart, every breath that fills your lungs, every synapse firing, every reverberation that causes you to hear, these are all things brought about by the active presence of a sustaining God. You see, God didn't create the world long ago and then spin it and leave it to go on its own. That's deism. That's not Christianity. No, your ability to breathe again, to think, to somehow refrain from sleep at the moment, to hear, to have your heart beat, to have your lungs breathe again. These are all things brought about by the sustainer. And this God has so declared that, friend, the reason you and I exist is that we would seek God, meaning that we would be in relationship with Him, that we would know Him, that we would worship Him and Him alone, that we would image Him as people made in His likeness that we would draw our deepest joy and satisfaction from Him. 
That's why people exist. And yet, although innate within us is the desire to seek and know God, because of our fallenness, our sin, our unbelief, it has left us in a precarious position. And Paul describes it in this sermon like a person who is 100% completely blind, groping about in a dark room trying to find something. Humanity is left in a state in which we cannot morally see and yet we're groping about trying to find God. We worship creatures rather than the Creator. God will not tolerate this stubborn refusal to worship Him forever. He has fixed a day. Maybe today. A day when Jesus will return. But not as an innocent little baby. But as the sovereign judge. Do you want proof? Paul said, here's your proof. Exhibit A. Jesus is resurrected. Of course, implicit in this sermon is Paul's intent, his invitation that the Athenians would turn from sin and seek forgiveness in Christ and find new life in Him and be delivered into the relationship for which they were created. And that remains God's message for us. Now, what happens when that message is shared? Friends, time doesn't allow us to read the rest of the passage, but let me just try to summarize it for you. When Christ is preached, whether it's two people in a coffee shop or a room like this, well, we've had hundreds of people today. Friend, when Christ is proclaimed, three things are common. Number one, there'll be some people who say, that's foolish, stupid, I don't believe it. There'll be others who say, huh, I'm not so sure I'm ready to swallow that whole, but I want to think about it more. And number three, there will be some who believe. Let me speak to those three very briefly. Number one, friend, if, if you're among currently that first group, the people who say, you got to be kidding me. You got to be stupid to believe that. I want to encourage you not to remain in that position because your only hope of finding what it is that you're longing for inside is all bound up in the gospel. And so if you reject Jesus, then you're rejecting the very thing you're searching for but don't know it. There's no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. If you long to live congruent with what is true, then don't mock. Instead, you don't have to pretend you believe. Instead, take up the scriptures and read. You have nothing to lose by considering Christianity more closely. And you have everything to lose if it turns out that you're wrong. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in that first group, to move over to the second that second group that says, I, I want to hear more. I'm not ready to commit to Christ, but I'll think more about it. Friend, if you're in that group, if you're not a Christian, but you're open, 
I want to encourage you to get out a piece of paper or your phone and start writing down the remaining questions that you have. Consider this week who you know that might have some knowledge of the answers to your questions. And make plans that what you'll prioritize this week is trying to work through some of those questions. If you don't have somebody to talk to, we'd love to do that. And we promise not to treat you like a used car salesman. Our goal isn't to persuade you of something you don't believe. Rather, it's to set before you the feast that is Christianity and invite you to eat. But only you can take it up and eat. Finally, to that last group, that third group, the ones that do believe. Friends, consider this morning from this text something of what you have been rescued out of and who you know. The creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. It's not far. He's within. He loves you. He's delivered you. And may you enjoy this week the one for whom you were created, namely Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would use your preached word and that whether online or here in person, that people would be moving toward that thinking more about Jesus if they're not yet saved and that those of us who are would be encouraged in Christ this morning and that this week we would share you boldly because the same spirit that fueled Paul's obedience is the same spirit within. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.